Broadcast from the centre of England for one week only, this is Treks in Sci-Fi with a Waffle on Twist. Hello there and welcome to Treks in Sci-Fi number... I am not a number! <laughs> Whoa, wait a minute there, number six, we haven't even started yet. This is episode number 230. My name is Simon Meddings, Meds from Waffle Island, or Hawkeye Meds from the Treks in Sci-Fi forums. And if you're not a member of the forums yet, then why not? Come along, sign up and get all the news and reviews on all things sci-fi and you won't be given a number. Well, this edition of your favourite geeky podcast is all about The Prisoner. Now, I love this show, and I first saw it back in 1989, a good 20 years ago. God, doesn't time fly? So, look, let's get started. And what's the best way to start a podcast dedicated to a special TV series than with the theme tune? But in true Treks in Sci-Fi style, we're not just going to play the theme tune, we're going to have a look at the composer. And who better than tell us all about it than our very own Vartok? Take it away, Vartok. <laughs> Talk again with another music and sci-fi segment. For today's segment, and at the request of Simon Meddings, or Meds as he is known on the Trex and Sci-Fi Forum, I'm going to talk about Ron Greener, the composer and conductor of the music theme to the TV series The Prisoner. If you were like me, you probably couldn't come up with the name of this composer, and yet millions of people are still familiar with his work 28 years after his untimely death. He ultimately became one of the outstanding composers of music for British television. The IMDb is just filled with his works. The song you've been listening to is called Mouse on the Moon, composed in 1963 for a movie of the same name. Ron was born in a small mining town called Atherton in Queensland, Australia on August 11, 1922, where his father owned the local milk bar. His mother played piano, and Ron was on the keyboard from the age of two, and considered a child genius, playing concerts for the local community by the age of six. He also showed the first sign of his versatility when at age four he began to learn the violin, practicing for two hours before and after school. In order to develop his talent further, he also studied the piano to such a level that by his early teens, he was a proficient performer on both instruments. He was never allowed to play any games which might injure his fingers, so he led a pretty lonely life. But Vartok, you said people remember his music decades after his passing, and I didn't recognize that first track. Fair enough. In 1963, Ron Grainer became quite well known for the following track, which I'm sure you will recognize.
course, this is the theme to Doctor Who, which first aired in 1963, for which he wrote the title music and for many episodes. In the beginning, Doctor Who was a children's BBC science fiction series. The very first episode of Doctor Who was dominated by the news of President Kennedy's shooting on November 22, 1967, and so tended to go unnoticed. It wasn't long, however, before it soon became one of the most popular children's programs of all time. What is amazing to me is that the Doctor Who series has been on television many times over the years, and Ron's theme music for the show is still being used some 46 years later. Ron didn't write the lyrics to this song, he did compose the music, and Bartok is reasonably sure that many of you recognize this too. And now finally, here is the theme to The Prisoner. and frenetic drumbeat in the beginning, the theme plays while Patrick McGowan, British spy, resigns his job, drives home to pack, gets snatched by the spy service, and is then delivered to a mysterious seaside village where his captors try to find out just why he resigned. The track has two segments to it. The first part is the just-mentioned frenetic resignation and capture. Then there is a break in the music, followed by the second, more sedate part, McGuhan wakes to find himself located in the mysterious village. I will let the music play and you will pick up on the second part. should you know about the Prisoner theme song that is well documented, but possibly not so well known? Stay tuned, and I'll be back with the answer later in this podcast. Okay, great, and we'll come back to Vartok at the end of the show. 
So, the prisoner starred Patrick McGurn. Now, in 1966, he was earning over £2,000 a week, one of Britain's highest paid actors. I and mean, that's a huge sum of money now, let alone then. He had done several films, most notably Hell Drivers, All Night Long, Three Lies for Thomasina, and the filmatic version of Ibsen's Brand, which earned him great respect. McGurn had become tired of playing the character John Drake, a role which had made him famous in Danger Man, called Secret Agent in America. Now, coming up with the idea with script editor George Markstein, McGurn went to head honcho of ATV, Lou Grade, and pitched him some plans. The meeting was said to have gone like this. McGurn enters Grade's office at 9.30 on a Saturday morning. Apparently this was the best time to see Lou Grade. He explains to Grade that he no longer wishes to star in Danger Man, even though he is under contract for another series. Grade sits back and listens. McGurn then explains he has an idea for a new show. He takes out a folder containing the structure of the show, designs for sets, and photos of where the series is to be filmed. Grade said... You know I don't like reading this kind of stuff, just tell me about it. And that's exactly what he did. McGoon gave him a 15 minute explanation and pitched it the best he could. Grade replied, You know it sounds so crazy it may just work. How much will it cost, how long will it take and when can you deliver? And McGoon and Grade had a mutual respect for each other and I have to say that Lou Grade is one in a million. You'll never get a boss in TV like him again. He had guts and he'd go out on a limb and take chances and those chances gave us some of the greatest TV shows ever made in Great Britain. Think of Danger Man, The Saint, Man in a Suitcase, Department S, Jason King, The Baron, The Persuaders, Randall and Huck Curt Deceased, The Muppet Show, and, of course, The Prisoner. Now, The Prisoner had a budget of £75,000 an episode, a huge sum of money for a programme made in the 60s. As Vartak mentioned, The Prisoner started off with McGowan's character resigning from his secret job and suddenly being gassed at home and taken to a strange place. Now, before we get into the series, I just want to mention George Markstein. Mark Steen is sometimes overlooked when it comes to The Prisoner, yet it was he who came up with the idea of a secret place where spies go to. He'd heard of a place during the Second World War that looked after ex-spies, or people who were ill or fatigued with their detailed work. They were kept under guard, but looked after. But no one knew where this place was. Mark Steen wrote about this in one of his novels called The Cooler. Mark Steen can be seen at the beginning of, well, near enough every show, during the opening credits, as he is the gentleman with the bald head and glasses who receives McGowan's handwritten resignation. Interior shooting would take place at Boreham Wood, which housed the Elstree and MGM Studios. This is actually where 2001 was filmed. Exterior filming took place in London, mainly in the opening shots where we see McGowan drive from his office to his house. Most notably, these are the Mall, number one Buckingham Place, Abingdon Street and Abingdon Car Park. And yes, I've been to all of these and like a true geek that I am, I've had my photographs taken there. Now, the main location shots were filmed at Port Merion in Wales. It's a beautiful location designed and built by Sir Clough Williams Ellis between 1925 and 1975. And these are based on Italian designs and do feel like the Mediterranean. It's strange, but when you're there, you, you do feel like you're in another country, and this is probably the reason why The Prisoner was filmed there. McGoon had been to Port Merion before when he filmed an episode of Danger Man back in 1959, and this was used for, yep, a stand-in for an Italian village. Filming started in the summer of 1966, and back then, Great Britain seemed to be in constant sunshine, unlike today. Now, casting was important to the prisoner, and McGowan was incredibly loyal to those he worked with in the past, and many of the crew he had worked with on Danger Man came back for the prisoner production. Most notably, those to return and have significant input on this show were Don Chafee, who directed The Avengers, Danger Man, Fantasy Island, Stingray, MacGyver, TJ Hooker, Matt Houston, Charlie's Angels, and in the film world, Jason and the Argonauts, The Three Lies of Thomasina, One Million Years BC, The Viking Queen, Creatures the World Forgot, Peach Dragon and Chomps, which was his final feature film. Other people was David Tomlin, who most famously has become one of the world's leading assistant directors, and to his credit you can have the Indiana Jones films, Superman, Superman 2, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, just to name a few. For the cast, they picked some of classic actors from British TV. Now, the actors who would be seen portraying the number two role would be Guy Dolman in the first episode, Leo McKern, who would reprise the role of number two three times and suffer a breakdown for his work, Colin Gordon, Peter Wingard, Rachel Herbert, Eric Portman, George Baker, Anton Rogers, John Sharp, Devin Nesbitt, Patrick Cargill, David Bauer, Clifford Evans, Georgina Cookson, and finally, Kenneth Griffiths. There are three other roles that are near enough in every episode of The Prisoner, and they are Peter Swanwick, who played the supervisor, Angelo Muscat, who played the ever-faithful butler, and Finella Fielding, who is the voice of the intercom. 
So let's get into the episodes. Now, I'll mention all the episodes, but I won't be going into too much detail with all of them, just the ones that in my mind stand out. The thing to remember is that Patrick McGowan only wanted to do seven episodes. Lou Grade wanted 26 so he could sell them abroad. A compromise was made and 13 would be filmed and then a further 13 if things worked out. As it turned out, only 17 were made. The list of episodes are, and I should point out that these are in the order that should be viewed for best pleasure. This is not the broadcast list. It does differ slightly, but the first and the last three episodes are in the same order. Okay, so here are the episodes by name. Arrival, Dance of the Dead, Free for All, Chimes of Big Ben, and That's My Phone. Now, is that, <laughs> is that Rico calling? Hold on a moment. Okay, sorry about that. I'm keeping that in, <laughs> for as it's the norm that happens with checks in sci-fi where the phone goes off. <laughs> so let's go back to the uh, the episodes as um, should be viewed. Arrival, Dance of the Dead, Free for All, Chimes of Big Ben, Checkmate, The General, A, B and C, The Schizoid Man, Many Happy Returns, Living in Harmony, A Change of Mind, Hammer into the Anvil, Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling, It's Your Funeral, The Girl Who Is Death, Once Upon a Time, and, finally, Fallout. Okay, so let's get on to Arrival, probably the most important episode in the series, which is the first one. Uh, McGowan's character, the hero, resigns from his job. He drives home in his Caterham 7 Lotus sports car, registration number car 120C, and drives through London, stopping at number one Buckingham Place. He walks in, packs his case, and then he's suddenly gassed and passes out. He awakes to find himself in what appears to be his own home, but something seems strange. He stands up and walks to his window, lifts the blinds, and instead of the office blocks of London, he now sees the green lawn and houses of a picturesque Italian village. He races out of his roundhouse and looks around. It is deserted and silent. He looks up to see a man looking at him from a bell tower. Our hero runs up the stairs to the top to find no one there. He looks at the landscape. We see trees and a beach and colourful buildings. The bell chimes and then a small cafe opens below him and a waitress is dressing a table. Our hero leaves the bell tower and heads towards the waitress in hope of some answers. What's the name of this place? You're new here, aren't you? Where? Do you want breakfast? Where is this? The village? Yes. I'll see if coffee's ready. Where's the police station? There isn't one. Can I use your phone? Oh, we haven't got one. Where can I make a call? Well, there's a phone box around the corner. Thank you. Now he finds the phone booth, but the phone has no lead. It's cordless and works, so here for the first time we see a mobile phone. The receptionist answers and tells our hero this is a local calls only. He finds a taxi, but she drives him round in a circle. This is a local taxi. It is not long, of course, until he finds answers. He has a phone call from someone inviting him to the Green Dome. Now he heads to the Green Dome and he finds himself in a futuristic round control room. A huge screen to his left and in the centre sits a man in a round chair. Questions need answers. I suppose you're wondering what you're doing here. It had crossed my mind. What's it all about? Sit down and I'll tell you. It's a question of your resignation. Go on. The information in your head is priceless. I don't think you realize what a valuable property you've become. A man like you is worth a great deal on the open market. Who brought me here? I know how you feel, believe me. And they have taken quite a liberty. Who are they? A lot of people are curious about what lies behind your resignation. You had a brilliant career. Your record is impeccable. They want to know why you suddenly left. So our hero refuses to answer questions asked by number two, except for his date of birth, which he states as the 19th of March 1928, 4.31am. This is, in fact, McGowan's own birthday. He's shown around the village by number two, played here by Guy Dolman, and he also sees a monstrous white ball that suffocates one of the townsfolk. We don't know its name. In fact, we only hear it's called Rover later in the series. Rover is, in fact, just a weather balloon purchased at the last minute as the actual Rover would not work. The original um, design for Rover was uh, almost like a large round cap, uh, a large robot, uh, but it was uh, spectacularly bad and uh, ended up sinking into the uh, the river, I think, on a test run. So anyway, they bought all these balloons, and several of these were purchased and was most often tied to the back of the actor's leg. So when I was running across the beach or the village, uh, it, it looked like Rover was chasing them. Um, Rover is meant to be an almost alien in, in design. Uh, you see it being born a few times, but it's controlled by the supervisor. So right, back in the Green Dome, uh, number two is again asking our hero for answers and that he won't be leaving the village. I will not make any deals with you. I've resigned 
I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. Is it? You can hear the determination there in our hero's voice. He is not going to be playing ball. So he now attempts his first escape, and he's subsequently attacked by Rover. He wakes in hospital and demands to know where his clothes are. He is told they are burnt. But he then sees another inmate wearing them being hypnotised by a very small rover. He is given clothes and his number badge, which of course is number 6. His new clothes consist of beige trousers, blue trainers, a dark polo neck and a black blazer, which in real life is charcoal. Uh, This has small um, uh, white piping all around the edges. A small trivia fact here is that uh, there were two jackets used for filming, one with complete white piping and the other with broken piping. It's not known why they had such an obvious continuity flaw. Frank Mayer, who was a McGurin stunt double, uh, obviously wore one and, uh, while doing all the second unit location footage, but I, I guess we'll never know. So now dressed in his prisoner outfit, number six begins his life as a prisoner of the village. Where am I? In the village. What do you want? Information. Whose side are you on? That would be telling. We want information. 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 You won't get it. By hook or by crook. We will. Who are you? The new number two. Who is number one? You are number six. I am not a number. I am a free man. (laughs) <laughs> near enough every episode after arrival would start off with that amazing question session between number six and number two and nearly every actor to play number two would say those lines and when the actor was not used then regular voiceover artist robert Wrighty would do the opening number two dialogue next episode and, and <clears throat> remember this is the list on how to watch them not transmitted it was dance of the dead followed by the wonderful free for all now what makes Free for All so good is that the powers of the village attempt to break number six by giving him the opportunity to run the village by being voted in. After having breakfast he is told of the upcoming elections in the village. What a piece of luck to start our election campaign today. Elections? In this place? Of course, we make our choice every 12 months. Every citizen has a choice. Are you going to run? Like blazers, the first chance I get. Of course, number six isn't uh, stupid. He knows that they're not just going to let him take over the village, but he humours them anyway, And uh, but wants to know the rules, wants to know what he's actually uh, going to go on if he does agree to go up against number two in the next elections. What happens if I run against you? I might as well while I'm waiting. Delightful. What physically happens if I win? You're the boss. Number one's the boss. Now, throughout this episode, uh, number six is actually drugged, but we only, uh, as a viewer, see that when he starts to come out of the drug inducement. He also has a helper, number 58, who's a lady who speaks no English, and she's played by Rachel Herbert. Of course, number six wins the election, and the first thing he does is announce that he is in charge, and you are free. Obey me and be free. Of course, nothing happens, and the new number two stands up in front of him. And the new number two turns out to be... Yep, you've got it. It's number 58, the woman who spoke no English who'd been with him all along. Interesting fact about this episode is the uh, the local dialect of the extras caused some embarrassment as when they were shouting six for two, it came out as sex for two. So unfortunately some overdubbing was needed. The next episode, and this is a standout episode, is that of Chimes of Big Ben, starring the wonderful Leo McKern as number two. Once again, the two main characters meet, and number six is not in the mood to be sociable. Do you still think you can escape, number six? Well, I'm going to do better than that. Oh. Going to escape and come back. Come back? Well, I mean, escape, come back, wipe this place off the face of the earth, obliterate it, and you with it. There's some great psychological plays done in this episode. Uh, number six states that he does not take sugar, and in battling with the curious number two, drops several cubes of sugar into his tea. Uh, during another conversation later on when they witness a young woman called Nadia being brought in uh, number six is not happy with this but number two tells him he should join in Um, you know she's only here for recuperation why don't you show her around he does get to know her and he befriends her but cautiously 
Um, but of course Nadia, uh, the woman who's been brought in, is also cautious and uh, she uh, sees them when she's swimming, um, having a conversation together. There are some people who talk and some people who don't, which means that there are some people who leave this place and some who do not leave. You are obviously staying. Has it ever occurred to you that you're just as much a prisoner as I am? Oh, my dear chap, of course, I know too much. We're both lifers. I am definitely an optimist. That's why it doesn't matter who number one is. It doesn't matter which side runs the village. It's run by one side or the other. Oh, certainly. But both sides are becoming identical. What, in fact, has been created? An international community. A perfect blueprint for world order. When the sides facing each other suddenly realize that they're looking into a mirror, they will see that this is the pattern for the future. The whole earth has the village. That is my hope. What's yours? I'd like to be the first man on the moon. Unfortunately, what happens is that Nadia seizes and she decides to uh, attempt an escape herself. Uh, and this is in the sea. Unfortunately, she gets caught by Rover and he's hospitalised. So number six then takes it upon himself that he's going to escape and he's going to take her with him. Um, she nicknames him Big Ben because he says that they're going to get back to London. And obviously, Big Ben is uh, one of the trademarks of uh, landmarks sorry, of, of London. Um, they make a raft. Now, he makes this raft by joining in with village activities. He uh, goes to an art exhibition and, and submits a piece of art, and there's all these strange pieces. But when you put all these pieces together, they actually make a raft, and this is how they initially escape. So they're on this raft, they then get uh, to a small island, they're put into a crate and bungled off to London. All the time, Nadu is asking uh, number six questions, but he doesn't really answer them, he just kind of fobs her off. Uh, then suddenly when they get to London number six finds himself in the familiar office talking to a very sceptical old boss called the colonel six is in his office feeling almost relaxed when the colonel asks him why he resigned remember this is the whole point of this program is they want to know why he resigned six is about to spill the beans when the sound of Big Ben is heard he checks his watch but the time does not match it should be different because of his, he has travelled all these miles and through the timelines he then storms out of the office but instead of finding himself in London, he walks out straight into the village. He walks past Nadia and gives her the village sign for hello, which is the thumb and the index finger touching to make an O, raised to the eye. He has won the challenge, but he is still in the village. Another great episode follows this, and this is called Checkmate, and the episode resembles the classic game of Minds. Peter Wingard plays number two. Now, he became famous for playing Jason King, and later Clytus in the 1980 film Flash Gordon. Now, taking part in the chess game, number six sees an inmate wearing similar clothes to him. I should point out here that six is the only person to wear the piped blazer. Although George Baker's number two at the end of Arrival does wear it as well. Um, all the other characters in The Prisoner um, wear very um, bright striped colourful tops and bright colourful trousers. Um, but the inmate known as Manry Stick, in charge of his pieces on the board, wears a blue blazer with white piping. He wins the game, and he and number six talk. He suggests to six that the only way to win is to know who the wardens are and who the prisoners are. So number six recruits the rook, a man who moved on his own free will on the chessboard. With his help, uh, they go round the village asking the people if they would do certain things, like asking the gardener about a plant, and if the gardener replies, well, if you don't like it, I'll take it out. So he is a prisoner. One other person tells them to go away, thus he is a warden. So they do this and uh, they recruit a team. Um, Six then gets his plan working and escapes onto a boat, the MS Palatska. This, unfortunately, is a village vessel and number six finds himself captured again. In the boat, uh, number two pulls uh, the rook into uh, vision and uh, it looked like the rook had been helping number two all along but only because the rook believed that number six was a warden because of his authoritative manner. So it uh, all backfired on in that one. The general, the next episode, uh, involves mind manipulation through the use of subliminal learning. Uh, now, obviously, nowadays we're quite used to the art of using subliminal learning by putting CDs on when we go to bed and uh, hopefully waking up learning Spanish or Italian. Of course, it never never works. <laughs> and this episode is extremely well written. It's a good episode. And uh, number six actually wins by inputting a question for the general. Now, the general is just a big computer, and it's all about trying to get information out of people through subliminal learning. He types in the question question and the machine just blows up but what was the question well it's simple w h y question mark it's a question that is unanswerable i am not a number i am a free man a b and c is another episode which delves into the world of using drugs to get answers 
Number two in this episode, played with brilliant menace by Colin Gordon, wants and needs answers. They use three different drugs, lettering A, B and finally C. They put him in a scenario, a party, that number six used to attend every year. He knows the people, but it's like a dreamlike status. He figures what is going on by looking at his wrist. There are needle marks there, and so he deduces the clever sausage that he's being drugged at night by his nighttime cuppa, and then injected with the serum. He breaks into the lab and he swaps the drug over just for water and then manipulates his own dream. And he does this then by agreeing to take the party hostess to where he was meant to hand over his secret notes. Of course, bear in mind he's manipulating this dream. So, in the dream when number two is watching it, he sees the person that number six is going to give his, uh, his notes to. And who does the secret person turn out to be? Number two himself. Fantastic episode, and Colin Gordon makes a great number two. I couldn't help but play the uh, in the background of just summering up A, B and C, this uh, brilliant music that you hear in the background. Um, uh, there's some great tunes in The Prisoner. If you get a chance to buy the CDs, I would do. The, uh, some of the incidental music is, uh, is just absolutely stunning, so I thought I'd slip it in as we're talking about it. Anyway, let's go on to the next episode, which is called The Schizoid Man. Now, The Schizoid Man is a wonderful episode using a double of number six. Well, number two played uh, by a very youthful-looking Anton Rogers. Now, our American listeners will have seen him as the corrupt police chief in Michael Caine's Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Now, number two's come up with a plan to break Sixy's mind. They drug him, again, and then they keep him in hospital for several weeks, letting his beard grow and his hair grow. They then change the colour of his hair and give him a moustache. They also then, by electrocution therapy, make him left-handed. Number six then wakes up looking like somebody else. Well, he's got dyed black hair and a moustache and he's now left-handed. And number two comes in to say hello. But number two causes him Curtis and says they have a great job for him. He must impersonate the character of number six. A great idea, but of course there is a problem in their plan. At the start of the episode, number six is doing mind games with a young girl using telepathy. Now she knocks a glass of water onto his finger whilst trying to take his photograph and it bruises his nail. Now later in the episode, Six looks at a photograph and sees the date on the calendar clock. It is the date from only a few days ago, yet the bruise on his nail is near the top, so he's been out for at least a few weeks. He electrocutes himself and gets his right hand action back and then goes on to find the imposter. The password to get through is Schizoid Man, and Rover kills the fake number Six. So what does he do? Well he pretends to be Curtis, and number Six then tries to escape, but number Two catches him in his plan by saying... Do say hello to Susan for me, in which number six says I will. But of course, Susan died two years ago. We want information. The next three episodes, Many Happy Returns, Living in Harmony and Change of Mind, are good episodes, but not really worth an in-depth look. But one thing I will say is that the episode Living in Harmony was cut for American TV, as the murder scene in which the kid, played by Alexis Kanner, strangles Kathy, was deemed, uh, deemed just way too violent. The following episode, Hammer Into the Anvil, is a great episode and one that has a truly sadistic number two. He's played by the wonderful Patrick Cargill and he is a horrible piece of work. He's almost being bullied to get answers by his boss. We presume, of course, number one. Now in this episode, number two causes the death of a young girl, number 73. So six plans revenge by undermining him. Knowing that he is under constant supervision, number six listens to identical copies of Bizet's L'Elysienne. I hope they got that right. <laughs> and questions the word security in the village newspaper, the Tally Ho. Number two's henchman, number 14, finds out that Six is working for a secret organisation sent to spy on the village. He writes his name as D6. Now, anyone who has been reading or listening to the Treks in Sci-Fi RPG may remember that one of my characters, called Karam, says he is D6. Ooh, a bit of trivia there. <laughs> now, number two gets more and more paranoid until he is unfit to do his job and Six then informs him that it was Number Two's fear of his own masters which caused his own downfall. Now Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling was a Patrick McGowan free episode. It was filmed when McGowan went to America to film Ice Station Zebra with Rock Hudson and Nerdist Borgnine. It's not a great episode, but you do get to see the actor Nigel Stock pretending to be Six and visiting his old haunts in England. It's Your Funeral is another attempt at the Wardens trying to get information out of Six by using a young girl, whose father is being bullied into making a bomb to kill the old number two. What is surprising about this is that the authorities show they will kill one of their own to get information out of number six. 
Of course, Six prevents the bomb going off by putting the bomb carefully around a disguised, <clears throat> sorry, uh, around uh, number two. Now, the bomb's disguised as a seal of leadership, and uh, and that's another plot spoiled. The village is a place where people turn up. People who have resigned from a certain sort of job have defected or have been extracted the specialized knowledge in their heads is of great value to one side or the other are you sure you haven't got a village here okay so on to the last three episodes now the girl who is deaf uh, I really don't like it I think it's awful uh, I know some people like it but it could easily be taken out of the can and destroyed it's a, a fairy tale story you see number six get up to all kinds of scrapes dressed in, dressed in different costumes uh, simply because he's reading a children's story to the kids of the village and yes there are children there obviously the village keeps people till they die so they, you know, they end up starting families there now the last two episodes are amazing and before we crack onto these let's play an audio comment from our boss or is he number one of Treks in Sci-Fi, Mr. Rico Dusty. Hello Meds, this is Rico and on this week's edition of Treks in Sci-Fi I'm not doing the show which uh, you're doing a great job of uh, on The Prisoner. I'm just sending in a little comment about the TV show uh, that you're talking about and how much I, I enjoyed uh, watching it when I did. I knew about The Prisoner for quite a long time, you know, being into the, you know, sci-fi, fantasy TV type and movies and a big fan of that kind of thing. Uh, but I never really watched it. I caught little bits and pieces of it over the years, but I finally, I don't know what channel reran it. Uh, it was probably in the later 80s or so, but it was rerun uh, here, uh, you know, one, one episode a week. Um, I think it was over a summer, and I started to watch it. You know, before that, all I thought it was was this uh, big, crazy ball balloon thing that would chase this guy in the beach. <laughs> but uh, I was just blown away by by how good this show was when I first uh, finally got a chance to see all of the episodes together, you know, from the first episode onward. Uh, it's just a fascinating study in, in psychology and character and, and, and just so many different things and nuances, which I'm sure you're going into on your discussion, I and I, you know, that's a great thing because that's, uh, you know, what I'm trying to do with some of these guest shots is to give people who know things better a chance to talk about them. And I'm not certainly any kind of an expert on The Prisoner, but it is a show that I've enjoyed a lot. Uh, Patrick McGowan, is that how you say his last name? I don't know, but he was just great in this role. So, you know, just can, you know, just defiant and, and a rebel and, and, you know, a lot of the qualities actually uh, that that he shows in this series are things that I always sort of feel like I've kind of got uh, simmering in the back of me. You know, if I was put into those kind of circumstances, that I wouldn't give in. And uh, you know, the whole idea of that they're trying to find out, you know, why he resigned, I think, was the big point of it all, right? Uh, why he resigned being a spy and all that. And you see him drive away in his little car. I, I love the opening sequence to this series, too. That little opening theme credit sequence at the beginning is, is great. And, you know, I am not a number, I am a man. It, it, it's just such a classic, uh, you know, line and, and idea, in, you know, in, in everything. I, I don't even know really how to describe it, but and I've heard the, you know, and I saw little clips of it, but it looks like they're redoing it in sort of a miniseries form, I believe. But I'm sure you're going to talk about that as well. Uh, just again, thanks very much, Meds, for doing this. Uh, I'll just get out of here and let you do your job. And uh, thanks, everyone. Uh, I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. Excellent. Thanks, Rico. So the last two episodes, as I said earlier, Leo McKern will return as number two and, uh, and be in three episodes. This is his second. And it was this episode that made him have a small breakdown because of the pressure of filming. When you watch the episode, you can see the intensity, the drama, and the sheer one-to-one -one between the two actors. This was filmed early in the uh, filming order and was meant to be the sixth out of the seven episodes. You can tell because when Leo returns for the final episode, he looks entirely different, but more about that later on. So once upon a time, this is almost a play on screen. In fact, I would, uh, I would say you could do this entire episode on stage and get a standing ovation. So it starts with uh, number two, who's obviously been brought back um, to get information out of number six and he's not very happy about being here and you can remove that thing too i'm not an inmate you can say what you like you brought me back here i told you the last time you were using the wrong approach i do it my way or you find somebody else leave the coffee the coffee leave it 
How many times do I have to ask? Now, the cheeky uh, people in charge of the village there had left a, uh, a rover sitting in his in his chair, guarding him. So uh, once Rover goes, he then uh, has another look at the at number six's file and decides that he has to do the ultimate thing to get the information out of him. It will be between him or number six, and it's called Degree Absolute. Degree Absolute. I require approval. Unlike me, many of you have accepted the situation of your imprisonment and will die here like rotten cabbages. If you think he's that important, there's certainly no other alternative. You must risk either one of us. Who's standing beside you now? I intend to discover who are the prisoners and who are the warders. I am a good man. I was a good man, but if you get him, he will be better, and there's no other way. I repeat, no other way. I will not make any deals with you. I've resigned. Degree absolute. Tonight, please. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. Look, that's not long enough. You don't want to damage him. My life is my own. Very well. Tonight. So, this is it. Only one of them will come out of this alive. Number two has six hypnotised and then brought to what is called the embryo room. Now, the idea of this is that the two can make, uh, number two can make six relive his life from infant to present day in through various stages and segments, like we see him learning his ABCs. B, C, D, E, Salem. One, two, three, four, five, six, five. Six You can see the sheer intensity there on in that small scene between Patrick McGrew and Leo McKern and uh, although uh, they got on extremely well, this really did push Leo McKern over the edge and he did have, as I said, a, a small breakdown. And you can actually see why, that the fact that they're so against each other in it. Uh, now, on that scene he was learning his ABCs, he, he graduates to school and then leaves school. But of course, the, the idea of this is that they find out the ultimate question, why did he resign? And that's what he keeps asking him. The fine specimen you see before you now. Have you anything to say? Nothing, Nothing. Nothing at all. Thank you for everything, sir. Congratulations, my boy. You will do well. We are proud of you. Proud that you have learnt to manage your rebellious spirit. Proud that your obedience is absolute. Why did you resign? What's this? Oh, come along, boy. Why did you resign? From what, sir? Now, my boy, you know perfectly well what I'm talking about. Why did you resign? I can't tell you that, sir. Was it uh, secret? Hmm? Secret, sir. And confidential? No, sir. Top secret? No, sir. Top secret? State secret. Yes. State secret, sir. Don't state secret confidential. Why, why, why did you resign? All right, boy. All right, boy. Leave school, boy. Just tell me. No more school. Tell me why did you resign? Yes. 
And that ends there with number six actually knocking number two out briefly. <laughs> but you can see that the, the intensity there between the two, it's starting to take their toll. Number six is starting to realise what's going on, yet number two is actually starting to, to break down. It, it almost uh, reflects what was happening with the actors in real life. McGurn was, was quite in control, obviously, because he wrote this. But McKern really, really did take its toll on him. Uh, what happens now is that we see they go from the school and he, he learns how to box and he learns how to fence. But uh, he gives them the opportunity to kill number two at one point uh, when the, the protection cork at the end of the, the, um, the sword comes off. But number six can't bring himself to kill him. He just he does stab him, though. <laughs> um, and this goes on. And he does a job interview. He gets the job. But he gets arrested for drink driving. Well, dangerous driving, sorry. And he gets a fine but says he can't pay. When, when he gets questioned about that, he says units, which is the village currency, are not for him. Now slowly number six is coming round and he's starting to realise what's going on and then turns the tables on number two and tries to get number two to kill him why did you resign a piece a piece yeah let me out you resigned for peace yes let me out you're a fool for peace of mind what for peace of mind why too many people know too much. Never. I know too much. Tell me. I know too much about you. I don't. I do. I don't. I know you. Who am I? You are an enemy. I'm on your side. Yeah. Why did you resign? You've been told. Tell me again. Yes. I know you. You're smart. In my mind. Yeah. In my mind. You're smart. Why did you resign? Yes. Why did you resign? Did I know you are? A fool. What? Don't. Yes. No, don't. Yes, an idiot. No. I'll kill you. I'll die. You're dead. Let me out. Dead. Kill me. Open it. It's after this sequence that number two decides to reenact um, number six's apparent participation in the Second World War. Uh, sorry, Second World War by dropping bombs. But uh, we see him captured. But then we see a change in number six. He's slowly coming round, and then he begins to interrogate number two. And this is where number two explains about the embryo room. I do state this is a bit of a long clip coming up. I do apologise for that, but it's one of these things where you can't really edit. Chose this method because you knew the only way to beat me was to gain my respect. That's correct. And then I would confide. I hope that you would come to trust me. This is a recognized method used in psychoanalysis. The patient must come to trust his doctor totally. Sometimes they change places. Which is essential in extreme cases. Also a risk or grave risk. If the doctor has his own problems... I am. That is why the system is known as degree absolute. It's one or the other of us. Why don't you resign? <laughs> You're very good. <laughs> You're very good at it. <laughs> Play something cheerful. I'd like to know more. You will have every opportunity before we're through. Join me. Straight. One hundred percent proof. No additions. My word of honor. Cheers. Mind if I uh, look round our home from home? Not at all. Let me show you around. This 
delightful residence is known as the Embryo Room. In it, you can relive from the cradle to the grave the seven ages of man. William Shakespeare. Last scene of all that ends this strange eventful history is second childishness and mere oblivion. Sam's eyes, yes. Sam's teeth, yes. Sam's taste, yes. Sam's everything. Correct. No, there's no way out until our time is up. If we can solve our mutual problems, that will be soon. You can't take my word for it. Naturally, I would. Let me show you. To the door! <laughs> we are protected from intrusion in the most efficient way. No one can interrupt our, shall I say, deliberations. Totally encased in solid, finest steel. Behold the clock! <laughs> Five minutes! Set to open. On a new phase of our relationship. That is, if we're still here, we're likely to move. It's possible, am I nice? We then see them in their uh, home from home, which is, in essence, just looks like a trailer, which would be on the back of a lorry, and it's got bars on the front and it's surrounded by steel. Number two, number two goes in there, and he's still talking and explaining that they've only got five minutes left. And number six locks the door, and you know, gives the key to the, the butler. And the butler's supposed to be the one serving number two, but of course now the tables have been turned and number six is in charge. <laughs> he thinks you're the boss now. I am. I'm number two. I'm the boss. Open the door. Number one is the boss. No. Three minutes. You're scared. No. Can't take it. Fool! Not a rat. You're scared! Want me to come in? Let you out? No, no, stay away. Want to come out? Keep out! You're mine. Number six now lets number two out, and uh, he's badgering him, and number two's pleading for answers. He's only got five minutes left. In fact, it's less than five minutes. The can's down quite quickly, and we're not going to play that now. <laughs> but, uh,. With all these pleading, he's on his knees and he's begging for answers. And number six says, "Don't beg." And they walk back into the um, the home from home, the containment unit. And number two is drinking his uh, his drink, and slowly number six counts him down. And number two collapses and dies, and he's declared dead. What happens then is the supervisor opens the door and escorts number six to go and meet number one. We now onto the final episode, which is chaotic and thoughtful, but also in essence a bit of a letdown and I hate to say that because I adore this series but you know us geeks we do have our tendency to uh, to nitpick <laughs> now uh, Patrick McGoon wrote this episode within 48 hours of filming it's full of symbolism and political angst Six is ushered into a large room and offered a throne as his chair in front of him sit an array of robed figures wearing masks and having nameplates in front of them saying such things as education, reactionist, patriots, nationalists, etc. And then a man dressed as a judge stands at the podium and is told number six is presented to you. Now, number six um, gets to be called Sir in this. He's dressed in his normal clothes, the same clothes as he wore in Arrival. And um, he takes his money and then takes his seat and... Number two, who died in the previous episode, the one that we've just been talking about, he's brought to us and he sat under what can only be described as a large hairdryer, and he had some foam applied to his face. And what was happening here, uh, generally just to keep continuity, was because Leo McKern had uh, gone away on holiday to recuperate and, and was quite weary about coming back to the prisoner, but, uh, you know, he came back, and he came back with short hair, and he didn't have his beard, although he did have a moustache, and we see the, the number two go into this booth, but before he awakens, uh, we're shown number 48, who's a, a young man, he's an anarchist as well. Youth, with its enthusiasms, which rebels against any accepted norm because it must, and we sympathize. It may wear flowers in its hair, bells on its toes. But when the common good is threatened, 
when the function of society is endangered, such revolts must cease. They are non-productive and must be abolished. The example there of the uh, 60s attitudes of uh, the youth, the hippie guy with his flowers in his hair against the man, the boss, uh, obviously the judge, which would most doubtedly be another number two. Now, number 48 uh, is played by Alexis Canna, uh, who, who did play the kid in Living in Harmony. He's a great actor, and uh, later in life, uh, about 1979, made a film with Patrick McGowan called Kings and Desperate Men which uh, was remade later, with a few changes, into Die Hard. Uh, interesting little trivial fact there. Now, number 48 um, calms down when he's let out, but then goes on a massive run and runs around all the uh, the people in the, the seating areas. And uh, history has it, uh, story goes, that Patrick McGowan turned around and said to the extras that he'll give them an extra £5 of their wages if they could catch uh, Alexis Cannes. So they're all going quite mad, desperately trying to get hold of him. Number six ends up turning around and saying to the kid, uh, to the hippie, you know, don't knock yourself out. It's at this point that we see the new number two being brought out, Leo McKern. He's obviously got his nice clean face and uh, his moustache and he looks quite fresh. He's another one of the people that are now being classed as an anarchist. I feel a new man in the past to wield a not inconsiderable power. Nay, I have had the ear of statesmen, kings and princes of many lands. Governments have been swayed, policies defined, and revolutions nipped in the bud at word from me in the right place and at a propitious time. Not surprising, therefore, that this community should find a use for me. Not altogether by accident that one day I should be abducted and wake up here amongst you. What is deplorable is that I resisted for so short a time. It's interesting there that we get to see that actually the number twos are also prisoners. They are taken out of their high-profile jobs and suddenly brought to the village to run this place. Uh, uh, it's uh, an interesting thing there that it looks like you know everyone is a, a prisoner. So number two, well, the old number two, is also held and taken down to these chambers. And then what happens is... Um, Number six is offered the podium. He's given a chance to make a speech. Take it that you are prepared to meet uh, number one. Follow me, if you would be so kind. You can see that at number six, he's still not being given a chance to speak his mind. Uh, he's then led to a rocket, and inside this rocket is number one. He's standing there in a white robe, wearing a mask, holding a glass globe. He drops the globe, and six removes the mask to find another mask underneath, that of a monkey. He tears the monkey mask off, and number one is revealed to be number six himself. The number six chases number one around and then suddenly number one locks himself into the control room and the rocket starts up. The village then gets evacuated. Number six, the old number two and the hippie and the butler escape on the mobile home that we saw in Once Upon a Time. The village is then, or so we were led to believe, destroyed. We see the mobile home being driven towards London. They drop the hippie off on the way and then they all get off and they make their way to the Houses of Parliament. Number two enters the Houses of Parliament. That signifies that he is a member of the government. Six and the butler narrowly escape the law and make it to his old home. 
The door opens on its own, which was something that always used to happen in the village, and number six drives off in his old Lotus 7 car. And that's it. That's the end of The Prisoner. So, before I give you my views on what I think of the show, let's have the last segment of Vartok's piece. Hi everyone, this is Vartok again, with the answer to the question posed earlier, to what is well documented, but perhaps not so well known, about the theme music to The Prisoner. Well, I could tell you, but I'll let this woman tell you for me. Ron Grainer, who was by now well known for his title music for Doctor Who, had been commissioned. But as film librarian Tony Sloman recalls, Pat still had his own ideas for the title music to The Prisoner. If I remember being in Will's cutting room one day, when Pat wandered in, he always used to wander around the cutting rooms, and whistled the few opening bars of The Prisoner theme, and said to, to Will, you know, we said, fine Pat, what is it? You know, humoring him and getting rid of him, we said, you know, I think it's going to be the opening uh, of the show. And uh, we said, well, isn't, isn't Ron Grainer writing that? And he said, I'll, I'll give Ron the, these notes and see what happens. Ron Grainer then orchestrated the theme and supplied McGowan with a demonstration tape prior to the recording session. But Patrick still wasn't totally satisfied and asked Ron Grainer to increase the pace. And that certainly was a case of Pat being very dissatisfied with Ron Grainer's version of what he had written. I mean, he obviously liked the tune, etc. But I, 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 it was almost embarrassing to see him go in and or uh, remonstrate with um, uh, Ron. Uh, just, he just wanted uh, all the stops pulled out because it was too mild. Um, uh, I mean, Ron was a very nice man and, and, and it, it, it was almost too gentle and, and Pat was getting the incisive uh, side to it and, you know, pull up the drums and couldn't he make it, you know, almost go faster or go louder or whatever. And quite honestly, that made a huge difference. So finally, after five months, two false starts and three composers, the prisoner received the main theme it had been searching for. The recording session took place at the Denham Studios on Sunday the 5th of March, 1967, I will now play a small portion of Ron's preferred version of The Prisoner for you to compare. Which do you like best? The original quick-paced version requested by Patrick McGowan, or the one Ron preferred with the Renaissance sounding instruments? In 1971, Ron Grainer composed the music to the Charlton Heston cult movie, The Omega Man. The movie is based on the novel I Am Legend by Richard Matheson, written in 1954, and remade recently by Will Smith in 2007. In The Omega Man, Heston portrays Robert Neville, a military scientist who has developed an experimental vaccine just in time to spare himself from the onslaught of a devastating biological war. Neville has become the last man on earth, doggedly keeping up the appearance of a civilized existence in his heavily fortified townhouse in the midst of the ghost town that was once Los Angeles. If the music sounds familiar, Ron did reuse his thematic material from, you guessed it, The Prisoner. The music to this movie has been historically difficult to obtain and commanded high prices on eBay. However, in 2000, Filmscore Monthly created a newly restored master and released a limited 3,000 copy edition of The Omega Man. Since then, they have made the copies unlimited, and Bartok has just taken advantage of this and ordered a copy. Ron has never received the credit he deserved for a lifetime of work composing music for television, film, and stage musicals. 
In the area of television in particular, he has written five themes which are almost indelibly imprinted in the memory of anybody over the age of 50, and some much younger. Hopefully this small episode will help to make his legacy live in you for a short while. In the background, you've been hearing the theme music to the TV series Tales of the Unexpected, which ran from 1979 to 1988. Ron Greener died in 1981, only 10 days after being admitted to a hospital, suffering from cancer of the spine. He was only 58. Interestingly enough, Ron's work is still being discovered and used. There are many entries recorded in the IMDb for Ron dated after his death, including many for Doctor Who episodes. Well, that's it for this music and sci-fi segment. And now back to you, Meds. Well, thank you so much, Vartak. Okay, so The Prisoner ended and the TV stations and ATV were swarmed with complaints from angry viewers who didn't want a strange, surreal ending, but a standard James Bond villain ending. McGuin and his family had to leave England and move to Switzerland to escape the fury. Talk about making TV history. <laughs> when you think about it, the ending is fairly obvious. Okay, you can say that the show is just about a secret agent who resigned, was captured and tried to escape, but I see it in a different way. Now each person and item in the prisoner means something, and this is my view. Being a number is your lack of freedom. You are being tagged. The menacing rover is the eye that watches you, that keeps you in order. The butler is the little man in the community. But what about the final reveal? Well, who is number one? Well, for me, it's this. You can escape your job, you can escape your home, friends, family. You can change your appearance or, you know, character traits. But inside, you cannot escape yourself. When you look in the mirror, deep inside you is your true self. And that is something you can never escape from. Now you may be interested to know that there are around six decent books on this series, a great set of CDs, a comic called Shattered Visage, several novels, and a great 40-year anniversary box set, DVD box set, and these are all available. This year we'll get to see the new version of The Prisoner starring James Cavill and Ian McKellen in the title roles. I'm hoping it will have the essence of the original, and maybe, just maybe, will entice more people to seek this original great series. Okay, so thanks go to the following people who have contributed to this edition of Treks in Sci-Fi. First, credit to Woody. Now, Woody is the guy who did the opening music, the remix of My Waffle On theme, in the style of The Prisoner. Now, you can find his stuff at myspace.com forward slash mymatewoody. And second thanks goes to the splendid Vartak, who spent over six hours compiling his segment. Thank you so much, Vartak, for helping me out here. Thanks also goes to Rico for his comment on The Prisoner and also for allowing me to do this special edition of his show. I hope you've all enjoyed it and we'll see you on the forums and also next week when Rico sits back in this chair. My name is Simon Meddings and I am not a number. I'm a true geek. (laughs) 